I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Angel Shang. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 21st, 2020. Coming up, we have Brenda Aquarzil in the studio today. Brenda is the Director of Climate Science for the Union of Concerned Scientists. She was in Denver for last week's Air Quality and Climate Conference, a panel discussion on public health impacts of climate change. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Building materials from living things. Creating living building materials is a goal for many researchers. Wood is made from a living material, of course, but when we use wood in buildings, the wood is dead. By contrast, if living materials were used as building materials, they could one day heal their own cracks, purify air, or even do interesting things such as glow, depending on certain environmental stimuli. University of Colorado Boulder researchers have developed a new approach for creating a living brick-like material using cyanobacteria. They reported their findings in the February 5th issue of Matter. So how did they create a living building material? Well, some bacteria produce calcium carbonate, the principal mineral in limestone. This is a byproduct of metabolic activity called biomineralization. Bacteria aren't the only sources. Calcium carbonate is a principal ingredient in eggshells and snail or mussel shells. And cyanobacteria are a really ancient group. They were the very first photosynthesizers, and they've been playing games with metabolic diversity for a couple billion years. Yeah, and what kind of metabolism uh, metabolism generates calcium carbonate? Well, there's an enzyme, carbonic anhydrase, that converts CO2 to soluble carbonic acid. At the right pH, this can combine with calcium to form the mineral calcium carbonate. Oh. Okay, well, biomineralization has attracted the attention of scientists who want to use this to create load-bearing building materials. If we can control the metabolism through environmental switches, we could have on-demand growth opening up a lot of different opportunities. Indeed, biomineralization is being studied or used for soil stabilization, repairing concrete cracks, and fracture sealing of oil and gas wells. This time, researchers created living building material that looks like a brick. They began with a scaffold of sand and hydrogel. They inoculated the inert scaffold using the cyanobacterium. The scaffold provided structural support while the matrix was greatly toughened using this mineralization. They then desiccated it and showed it had good fracture energy. This material was, that they've created has a compressive strength similar to minimum compressive strengths of cementitious mortars. They also worked out the temperatures and humidities when the material had self-healing properties. Well, parasites may not be so useful, but they are fascinating creatures, especially the ones with really complicated life cycles. They have to coordinate parts of their lives spent in different hosts. One wrong move and they're goners, yet they manage to infect millions, if not billions, of their hosts. Toxo, which is my shorthand for the single-celled parasite Toxoplasma gondii, is by far the most common parasite of humans on the planet, infecting up to 90% of people in some countries, including France for some strange reason. The figure is about half that in the U.S., but the CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control, estimates that 40 million of us may be infected. And we're not alone because virtually all warm-blooded animals can get Toxo. So how do animals get infected? Well, the key hosts are felines, typically the household kitty. 
The cat gut is the only place the toxoparasite can reproduce. Cats get infected just like we do by eating eggs. More on this in a minute. Once the eggs hatch in your cat, they find the intestine to be just the right place to mature into the reproductive form. Here, eggs are laid and excreted. Yes, then they can be eaten by other potential hosts to continue the life cycle. Once the eggs are ingested, yes, they do get into your mouth somehow, whether you eat contaminated meat or something touched by your unwashed hands. They transform into another form, which can migrate into your nerve and muscle tissue where they form cysts. Then the cycle repeats, unless the toxo migrates into the brain where it can cause big problems, or into a developing fetus, ditto. In a bizarre example of how exquisitely parasites have adapted to modifying their host's behavior, Rodents whose brains are infected with toxo lose their fear of cats and actually approach them. Guess what? Then they're more likely to be eaten and infect the cat. Well, that's what was widely believed until new studies showed that this risk-taking behavior is not specific to cats. Instead, the parasite simply makes mice more eager to explore and less fearful of any species that might gobble them up. And this study was published last week in Cell Reports. Well, since humans can get infected with toxo too, are people affected this way? Intriguingly, toxo in human brains may have similar effects. Some research has linked toxo infections to schizophrenia and other mental illness, while other studies have shown a correlation between toxo infection and risk-taking behavior, which includes entrepreneurial efforts. Oh, overall, that doesn't sound too good. One more reason to always wash your hands before you eat, I guess. If you're looking for a show, Me breathless. Come on. Do you want to do the intro? Our guest in the studio this morning is Dr. Brenda Eckwurzel. Brenda is a senior climate scientist and the director of climate science for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She's in the Denver and Boulder area for the air quality and climate conference, or she was for that conference, and she'll be telling us about the conference as well as her role with UCS. She has many roles, including researching the influence of major carbon producers on rising global average temperatures and sea level. Thanks, Brenda, for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with us at How on Earth at KGNU. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. So first, Brenda, please tell us about the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, where is it located, and what is the organization's mission? Sure. It was founded by over 50 years ago by MIT scientists and students. So our headquarters is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We also have offices around the country, um, and I'm in the D.C. office. And we essentially combine technical analyses with effective advocacy to create innovative practical solutions for what we're striving for is a healthy and safe and sustainable future. That's one of our main missions. Well, your recent work at UCS is really interesting. It's focused on taking uh, the emissions that other people have tracked very carefully and then determining what are these consequences, what happens when we have um, elevated CO2 in the atmosphere can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. It really, I am, I'm indebted to Rick Heady, who lives up in uh, Snowmass, Colorado, and his great work for years. He looked at company self-reports, stat oil. He went to China. He went to Norway. He went all over the world, looked at companies, and he figured out an annual sale of the products of fossil fuels and cement manufacture between 1854 to present. And that work allowed us to understand annual emissions of carbon dioxide and methane 
into the atmosphere. And I worked with uh, colleagues at Oxford University uh, using a well-established climate model to basically tie that back to the Rick Heaty's specific companies around 90, and now they're about 88 with mergers, uh, looking at global sea level rise, ocean acidification, and global warming, global mean surface temperature. So Rick went to the companies themselves to get these data and then came to these conclusions about how much each company contributed to emissions? Yeah. He, he What he did was, um, basically, it's really important. It's right at the source. And People keep track when you sell something for money. And so we know how much bituminous coal or anthracite or natural gas, how much was extracted and sold for energy use or cement manufacture. And so once we have those emissions, we can put it in a climate model and figure out the consequences. I see. We all know that we need to reduce these carbon emissions to avoid the worst climate scenarios. Who bears the cost for the climate damages or the adaptation costs? Right now, um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, they've come together with a Paris Agreement, and people understand that different country emissions are contributing to the problem. So through that model, uh, the countries put their chips on the table. How do we reduce our own emissions? Yet at the same time, with Rikidi's work and others, we say that's downstream emissions with the U.N., Let's go right at the source, and when you extract it and sell it and you know it's going to be um, sold for energy use, we could calculate how much that would contribute to consequences. So if some people are saying, wait a minute, that also is another way to track. So these are two different ways of tracking. And right now, taxpayers bear the brunt of responsibility for uh, reducing emissions at the country level, state level, local. And a lot of places like Boulder County, Boulder Municipality Boulder are doing that, and San Miguel County. But they are at the front lines of saying, wait a minute, even if we do our job to reduce emissions, we still are dealing with the consequences of wildfires. We're dealing with the consequences of changing river patterns, We're the changing forest ecosystems. And these consequences mean that people's lives and property are at risk when an intense rainstorm happens and a very devastating flood and other types of consequences from wildfire. How will we pay for that? Some of these overwhelm county budgets if they're extreme events, which we expect with this level of climate change we already have today. So this is the classic externality where the consequences are generated by a profit-generating company, but the costs are borne by the public. So it sounds like there's a gradual shift in policy that will maybe assign some of these costs to the companies that are generating the emissions. It's really um, groundbreaking. There are lawsuits, actually, with San Miguel County and the municipality of Boulder and, and, and Boulder County are saying we need just a tiny bit to help of the global profits of fossil fuel companies to help us adapt. And that is something that uh, people are paying attention to. As a scientist, we can calculate percent contributions, but that's only part of the story. And so what the lawsuits look is, and the dialogue is looking at, wait a minute, since the 1960s, science historians have told us, told us that companies knew that if they sold this product for energy use, it would harm the climate. And, and then what were the choices that were made by companies? And what were the ability of governments and people to really... Um, you know, who don't necessarily have this knowledge that, that's as well known as today. What do we do? And what do we do with that history? And what do we do going forward, perhaps more importantly? 
what is it about that's Colorado's doing that um, puts us on the map? Because you're here from D.C., and we're, we have our own battles to fight here, mostly with the floods and the fires. Um, the ocean acidification doesn't hit us as hard. But what is it that Colorado efforts um, have uh, – what is it about Colorado efforts that have attracted your attention and brought you here? What's fascinating is there are um, many other municipalities and counties around the country have also – decided to say, hey, we need help from the fossil fuel industry to deal with the adaptation, even if we reduce our emissions, get to zero carbon, sustainable energy use for our communities, we're still going to have to deal with adaptation and loss and damage. We already are dealing with that. We know more is going to be baked in. Well, those tend to be sea level rise cases or tend to be um, a, a livelihood that may be shut down, such as fishermen in the Pacific coast that are fishing for demoic uh, crabs that are dealing with warmer ocean waters and get demoic acid, which is a neurotoxin, so you can't eat it. You have to monitor. So what's new is that Boulder County, Boulder Municipality, and San Miguel County are looking at these inland impacts that are specific to Colorado. And so that is something that a lot of people are paying attention to. And there was recently a decision to say it should not be in federal court, but it should be, because these are local damages, it should be through the Colorado court system. And so some of the, uh, we're a science-based nonprofit, but we have colleagues who are working, uh, you know, who are more paying attention to the legal sides of this. And they say that uh, this is going to be going through the court system, and maybe we may hear some decisions in the spring or summer. Now, have any of these other court cases on the coast, have they actually gone through court, or are they still in the process of litigation? They're still in the process. So this particular, um, you might get to discovery uh, soon if there's a, a decision um, in the spring, we may or may not have discovery of information. And so that's, um, I think, for, I'm not a, a lawyer, so what my colleagues are telling me that this is pretty, um, the timing of what's going on in Colorado is, is pretty exciting from their standpoint. Yeah, it definitely is. And if you're just joining us on air, we're speaking with Dr. Brenda Eckwurzel. She's the Director of Climate Science for the Union of Concerned Scientists. We've been talking about some of her findings on air quality and climate change. So um, let's continue with talking about the Colorado implications, because I think our listeners are really interested in this. So especially floods and wildfires. We've experienced both of those in Boulder County and the state as a whole is at risk. Sure. So I had the privilege of being a co-author of the Force National Climate Assessment that was released recently. And what you find in there is to show that as scientists, the scientific community have been looking at, for example, the cumulative area of wildfire acres burned in the western United States. And from 1985 to the year 2015, there's a graph in there that shows that in 2015, so this is the cumulative areas burned, that half of those acres burned by the year 2015 would not have burned were it not for this level of climate change. Well, that's a lot. The other attribution statement that's in there that I think uh, are of interest to Coloradans is really the privilege of being in the source region, the watershed, the snowpack, the forest ecosystems, and the upper Colorado River Basin. Um, the Colorado River flows uh, through the to the southwest. Between the year 2000 and recently, the reduction in flow of about seven to seventeen to um, seventeen to fifty percent of that flow uh, would be attributed to the climate change. In other words, uh, authors such as um, 
Brad Udall and Jonathan Overpack kind of call it a hot drought river. So we've had droughts in the past. It's a natural time immemorial. We've had wildfires. We've had, but the changing ecosystem and our high mountain elevations, changing forests, changing snowpack, and the increased warmer atmosphere means that you have more water loss from vegetation, more evaporation of the soil water, the watersheds. And so the reduction of flow on something that so many communities in the Southwest depend on for um, water resources, uh, the foraging for cattle, uh, serious declines people have seen in the drought uh, for forage cattle. And, and so these are real strains within uh, parts of Colorado and the whole Southwest. So one thing we've talked about before on the program is the improvement in the models that allow us to assign probability and, and in fact, almost certainty to some of these um, climate emissions with respect to specific incidents like storms or fires. But still, there was, there's a big range in terms of the values that you were assigning. Can you talk a little bit about what those sources of uncertainty are that, that lead you to say, well, the, it's between 17 and 50 percent? Sure. Um, I would say the attribution is strongest for, say, ocean acidification and global mean surface temperature. But when you're starting to talk about a specific extreme event like a Hurricane Harvey, um, you have to run lots and lots of models. And the more models you run, you can get a much finer resolution. But those cost money. So And so, you know, it's a trade-off between how often we run these models and how, pre- how precise they are. But the point is, scientists can figure out that basically the primary cause is fossil fuel use. And no matter how you slice it and however these percentages change, um, that's important. But some things like extreme heat and the combining influences, for example, with coral reefs, you have warmer oceans and you have ocean acidification. It's going to be interesting for philosophers. We could we could calculate them separately, but in a way, these combined impacts, sometimes they would be for example, for an extreme heat wave, you could get into the realm where you have an extreme heat wave in Europe that would not have been possible. So you start getting into very high percentages of accountability. So in other words, if you're in the normal range of what would happen since the pre- in the pre-industrial or earlier time, but now you get something that would not have been possible, that's much higher responsibility. So, I mean, c- contribution. I shouldn't use the word responsibility. So these lawsuits are one way to implement policy change. Are there other tactics that people are taking? Of course, um, everyone is looking for ways to reduce emissions as rapidly as possible. And one of the um, conferences we were participating in was in a conference up at Western University up in Gunnison. And they were spending the day trying to figure out how can we reduce our emissions in this region and this county. And people were getting down to brass tacks. How can we electrify our transportation system? Because in general, if you electrify end uses and you clean up the energy supply, you go a long way towards the two top uh, contributors to global warming in the United States is our transportation and our electricity supply. So that's really happening. Yeah, people were rolling up their sleeves. There were people from Park City and getting it back, sharing information. Well, electrical supply in Colorado is always challenging because we derive most of our electricity from coal-fired plants. So uh, we we are working to change that, but that'll be interesting to see how that evolves in the future. 
Yes, that is, for example, uh, we've done analysis at UCS, uh, Union Concerned Scientists, where we say if you were driving an electric car in some parts of the country, it would be worse <laughs> than if you had a gasoline-powered car because the electric supply, if it was primarily, say, 90 95% coal-fired power, it's worse than if it were natural gas with combined heat or especially if it's renewable. So that we're moving towards, as we clean up the electric supply, um, we, we the electrification of end use. But it's really important to get those early adopters because you mm-hmm. need to build up the infrastructure. You need to prove the concepts. And so that's really, really important. And there's some leaders. I've been seeing a lot of nice electric cars and they're zippy running around uh, in, up in the mountains and uh, handling the snow and also down here in the valley. Yeah, they're fun to drive. They are zippy. Yeah, and Jill's been, <laughs> Jill's been driving me around in one. <laughs> so um, can you talk about the work that you did recently in Telluride? Sure. Uh, Well, what we were doing was sharing some of the latest science. We we also were involved with um, some research with some regional uh, coalition partners, and it was looking at the changing Rocky Mountain forests. So unfortunately, what we see is if we were to do mid-emissions strategy, uh, sorry, if we were to reduce emissions a moderate amount, a lot of the fire risk up in the high mountain forest is quite high. So it would be uh-huh. a really almost very big change in um, the in the lower elevations, the lodgepole pine, different uh, species, but also the Engelmann spruce and some higher, higher elevation trees. You start seeing this big shift in the region, the southern Rocky Mountain ranges in northern New Mexico and Colorado, where you start losing a lot of the species that we know and love and cherish, and they're really remnant in the more northern latitude of the Rocky Mountains. So that we could avoid that if we were to really radically uh, get on the train and over this decade make decisions and get away from high emission sources. And so that's saving the cherished landscape. That also affects snowpack um, because whether you have a canopy that is uh, a robust forest versus if it was a wildfire and you have, um, it changes when the spring snowmelt happens, the timing, the warmer air. And we did share also that uh, Colorado high elevation communities, so recent research by my colleague uh, Dahl and others at the Union of Concerned Scientists and peer-reviewed publication and a report basically showed that low elevation communities are going to be experiencing extreme heat. And I'll share the numbers for Boulder. Okay. Yeah. So historically, Boulder had, and this is uh, days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit heat index. So that has implications. If you're an outdoor worker, you start suffering at 90. You have to do compensation measures to protect your health. So historically, Boulder's, you know, it's only a few days. It's about four days on average between 1971 and 2000. If we continue on our current path, which is a high emissions pathway, we do little action. By mid-century, those numbers jump to about 37 days per year over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, that's a different Boulder. That's over a month. These wouldn't necessarily be consecutive over the summer, but some of them would be. And so that means you have to adapt, um, you know, anyone who is, is outside. And if you're exercising, you have to do, make, pay attention on those days. Then uh, by late century, that would jump up to 75 days in Boulder, Colorado. At this elevation, over 90 degrees Fahrenheit feels like temperature. If, however, we were to do a aggressive action um, with bold action, we could, by the end of the century, we could limit it to 29 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, 29 days at not, up above 90 degrees Fahrenheit feels like temperature. And that's the issue with climate change. Through historic emissions, we've already baked in that, um, and if we do, if we do the Paris Agreement, 
which is a heavy lift, we would still jump from four days to 29 degrees. And that's the point, is even if we reduce our emissions and get to sustainable zero, we're going to have to adapt. And those adaptation costs... Are everywhere. Yeah, they're expensive. And they're taxpayers. Currently, it's the taxpayers who bear them. Taxpayers bear the full brunt. Yeah, Currently, full brunt. which is why it's really important, I think, the attributions that you and your co-authors and other researchers have been assigning to specific companies. And it's it's a finite number of companies. It's not thousands. It's less than 100. Yeah, they're principally responsible for the emissions. Yeah. yeah. So with increasing temperature, you have increased evaporation, and then you have some increased precipitation in some areas. But it, does that happen? Where does that happen? Do we does Colorado get yeah. any of the increased uh, precipitation from the increased evaporation, or does that go elsewhere? Yes. Uh, what we see is with the uh, contiguous United States, um, all areas in the contiguous United States, when it rains, it's more likely to be a more intense rain, even in the southwest. It's not as much. The areas, the northeast and midwest get much higher uh, percent volume uh, increase in the intense rains. However, like the Boulder Flood is an example right. of really interesting combination of atmospheric dynamics that are setting up. You get flows from the warm Gulf of Mexico. You're getting flows from the Pacific Northwest. You have many different precipitation choices. And I think what's challenging is that we have to pay attention to the weather forecast even more and understand these dynamics. You have sometimes cold blasts from the Arctic that are coming down, a changing jet stream, and you have precipitation cho- uh, sources from the – sometimes the North America monsoon might reach up here. Sometimes you get cold blasts from the Pacific Northwest, pineapple coming down. Uh, when that jet stream is bringing convective energy, you might have great snow years. And then other years, that jet stream might shift further east and miss Colorado. So how does the ski industry adapt to – some years are going to be, wow, everyone's coming. And other years, oh, oh, we can't even get enough snow for cross-country skiing and and really long trails. And you have to make snow. And maybe it's too warm and things like that. And so that swing is much more difficult to adjust a business model. And adapting the business models for multiple different types of weather and different ways to play on the, in the mountains and enjoy the outdoors are, are adaptation costs. Yeah, so not only is there uncertainty in climate change and the models, but also our behavior is going to be really uncertain. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so I will link to your website, the UCS website, and some of the links to papers for interested listeners. And to repeat, that was Dr. Brenda Eckwurzel, Senior Climate Scientist and Director of Climate Scientists for the Union of Concerned Scientists. She's in, she was in town for the Air Quality and Climate Panel that took place in Denver last Thursday, and we spoke about the conference as well as her role with the UCS. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you, both of you. Thank you. <laughs> That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. And Angel and I produced this week's show, and I engineered. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the course. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Angel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett.